Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You're sitting there yakking my in my face. I guess I'm gonna have to put you in your place. You know, if silence was golden, you couldn't raise a dime. Because your man is on vacation and your mouth is working overtime. That's how politics sounds a lot these days, right? It's people yelling about Mr. Potato Head and critical race theory. <laughs> And a lot of other stuff that may not particularly be part of any solution for the average person. So, yeah, centrism, it's not a very sexy word, but I'm really interested in it and whether it exists or not. Uh, later in the show today, you're going to hear Christine Todd Whitman, uh, who is part of a new political party seeking that kind of hollowed out centrist core of American politics. You'll hear Yasha Monk, political theorist we talk to a lot. We're excited right now to talk to Lee Drutman, a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America, the author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, the case for multi-party democracy in America. And he just picked up a new listener to the podcast he co-hosts, Politics in Question, because I really like it a lot. Uh, So Lee Drutman, uh, welcome to the show. I'm going to apologize in advance for kind of speed dating with you, but we're in a pledge drive. I don't have as much time as usual, but I'm excited to have you. All right, let's let's fall in love with the idea that we need a multi-party democracy in America. So wh- why is well? Let's go back for a second. Just centrism for a second. Is that even a real thing, or is it the description of the absence of certain things? Is there identifiably uh, a, um, a political position that we could call centrism? I don't think there is. Centrism is by definition, a relational concept. So what is the center? The center is defined by the placement of other parties. So what is the core of that? Doesn't seem to me to have much of a core. I mean, first of all, there's the question of, is centrism the middle of the, say, the U.S. Senate? Uh, is it the middle of political polling? But what you but and I think implicitly to me, it's more solution focused. It's less ideological. It's more kitchen table. It's less culture war. Um, but but maybe I'm just imagining something that I crave as opposed to something that exists. Well, I, I think you're giving a label to something that you that you want that neither party is providing. But I, I don't know if that's so much as centrism as trying to move politics in a along a different dimension, which is towards uh, essentially a, a more managerial uh, dimension than an ideological dimension. Right. So on your very excellent podcast, you introduced me to the term thermostatic politics. And that's kind of the notion that the public does seek some kind of equilibrium. There may be different reasons for it. George Will has heuristically uh, argued this point for decades now that Americans don't like too much power in one set of hands. They don't want one ideology dominating. Uh, Explain the thermostatic term for just a second, and then we'll talk about whether it's useful in in this context. Well, the the thermostatic term refers to a pattern in American politics, which is that when a party wins the White House, 
public opinion trends in the opposite direction against the party in the White House and the party out of the White House tends to pick up seats in midterm elections. But here's where I think what that George Will approach kind of breaks down is which Americans. So if I, I look at Americans voting in the upcoming midterms, I see a lot of Americans who just want Democrats to triumph, a lot of Americans who just want the Republicans to triumph, uh, and some Americans who just feel like, ugh, the Democrats, Republicans, it's like, who, who, the, who, who the heck is looking out for me? And all they do is fight with each other. And there's some share of the electorate that will move to vote against Democrats, maybe. I, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's kind of a muddle when you get there as to what the motivations of these individual voters are. So what happens at an aggregate level in which Americans move in a different direction at a, a level down is most Americans pulling in two opposite directions and some group of unaffiliated, unaligned, mostly unengaged voters kind of moving in one direction a little bit, maybe, but not really all that much. Right. So let's get to your uh, argument that the only way out of or a way out of this is some kind of more multi-party system. I think, you know, intuitively, uh, some people are going to say, well, wouldn't that make people even more ideological if they could join the Green Party uh, or they could join some kind of party that, you know, more specifically kind of reflects their ideological niche? So how do we get from multi-party to some kind of centrist solution? Well, one, I would say, actually, what we're missing now is ideology and politics. All we have is us against them, which if we had ideology, at least we'd have some principles on which you can bargain from. But the Fair problem point. Is, Fair is, point. Is, is that all we have is, a, is partisan identity and other identities uh, in which there's no principles. So the, the argument that, that leads me to think that we ought to break out of the two-party doom loop and have more parties is that when we are in this binary uh, politics, it's impossible to have a space of compromise because you're either with us or you are against us in every election. Where is the space for compromise in that? The other side is evil. You can't compromise with them. You have to crush them. That is the message that Democrats hear day in and day out. That is the message that Republicans hear day in and day out. So wh where is the space for a third party that is offering a different approach to politics or really a fourth or a fifth or a sixth party? And that was that would be, I think, effectively what we would need to represent the diversity of this country. And then out of that, you could have a compromise coalition that inevitably is going to need to revolve around a political center. And that, that center may change over time, which is my point that centrism itself is, is only a relational concept. But the, the goal of politics is to build coalitions that broadly represent the diversity of people in a country. And right now, we don't have the capacity to do that because our electoral system and our party system forces people into one of two competing camps, which... Uh, forces everybody to make this binary choice. And these parties are aligned on racial and identity lines. They're aligned on geographic lines. They're aligned on cultural lines. And 
they're increasingly divided over the basic foundation of democratic fairness of or, over what it means to have a legitimate election. And it's really hard to have a democracy when we can't even agree on that foundational premise of what is a free and fair election. Right. So right now, Evan McMullen is running essentially, at least explicitly, as a centrist against Mike Lee in Utah. I assume you're not impressed by this. It's still kind of us versus them. McMullen is essentially defining himself in opposition to Lee and Trumpism. Well, I, I think... What Mike Lee is doing is, or sorry, what Evan McMullen is doing is super interesting. And I, I think it does uh, provide a potential path forward to break out of the, uh, the binary nature of our politics is that he's not he's not a Democrat. Uh, I mean, he's defining himself as an independent. It's fine to kind of define yourself as a as as somebody who's representing a different way of doing politics. And, you know, I, I hope I hope he wins that election. I'm it's going to be a close election, but I think it's got to be more than just sort of one-off candidates running as centrists or independents. What you need is a political party that offers a new identity to folks who want to define politics in a different way. And it can't be everything to all people. It has to offer a particular set of policies. So it can't just be about you know, we need to do solutions that work for the American people, because what are those solutions? If we agreed on what those solutions were, they then they they don't they're not political issues. The political issues are the issues that we are divided on. So to offer new parties also means offering new ideas, new dimensions of conflict out of which compromise and moderation can emerge. And this is a key thing that gets a little abstract, but it's really important to understand that Compromise and moderation emerges as a system level property out of a condition in which no one group can be dominant. I'm going to have so to stop you there, unfortunately. Give a half a million dollars to the station so I can have longer conversations with Lee Drutman. His book, Breaking the Two Party Doom Loop The Case for Multi Party Democracy in America. Check out the Politics in Question podcast. It's really good. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When we first started talking about this show, probably the first name I said was Yasha Munk, professor at Johns Hopkins University, author of The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can't Endure, among other books. He's also the founder of the publication Persuasion. But Yasha, first of all, welcome back to our show. And second of all, we're using the word centrism. But I guess the first question is, is centrism really an ism, or is it really just a rejection of extremes and kind of lacking in its own defining 
philosophy or policy set? Yeah, that's the question that I was going to bring up as well. Look, I don't know that centrism is an ism. I'm not even sure that I really would call myself a centrist. So let's distinguish between two different kind of ways that you might think about this term and about politics more broadly, right? The first is to say that, you know, some people have left-leaning or liberal positions. Some people have right-leaning or conservative positions. And a centrist may be somebody who on all of those issues is just going to be, you know, exactly in the middle, right? They're going to say, all right, on nearly all of these issues, if Democrats want to do one thing, Republicans want to do another thing, I'm going to be pretty much directly in the middle. And there are some people like that. And sometimes I am on particular issues. And I think there's, there's, there's you know, a lot of good things about that. But I think in the most meaningful sense of centrism, that's not really the way we want to talk about it. Because you know what? A lot of people, they might feel moderate or they might feel like they don't really belong in one party or another because they're pretty far to the left on economic issues, say, and pretty far to the right on social issues or, or the other way around, right? And so I think the more meaningful understanding what it is, is to be a moderate, what it is to be somebody uh, who is committed, as I would put it, to liberal political principles, not liberal as in left-leaning, but uh, liberal like philosophers and political scientists talk about it, is to say, look, we're going to have different policy preferences. And some of us may be really far to the left and some of us may be really far to the right, but there's a set of basic rules and norms about how our political system should work that we're really committed to, right? We're going to acknowledge when we lose an election. We're not going to try to shut up the people we disagree with. We're going to want to conduct in our, ourselves in a way that really maintains the pluralism of our nation and uh, the core mechanism of our democracy, which is free and fair elections. And so there's people who might call themselves centrist in that kind of broader sense. And, and that's a way in which I'm a centrist, because I do worry about the way in which some political partisans are trying to undermine our political system, are trying to attack our freedoms, are trying to say, my way or the highway, either you agree with me, or you're evil, or you're a terrible person, or we need to shut you up. That really concerns me. And, and so I think in that kind of sense, it's really important for more of us to be quote-unquote centrist for more of us to be in the broad democratic middle. But that can be consistent with saying, hey, I actually want far higher taxes or far lower taxes. I actually really want to change how we do immigration in this country. You can have particular policy preferences that are not all that moderate and be committed to a broad democratic center in that kind of sense. When I read stuff in Persuasion or Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D, for those of you who don't know it, or Quillette, I'm aware that I'm reading something that I'm not reading some elsewhere. There's a sort of sense that somebody is seeking to give me a sentence with the word but in the middle. In other words, I consider myself a political liberal but, comma. You know, I consider myself to be a, a strong conservative but, comma. And I feel like that the current political climate is very unaccommodating of but. You know, either you're a dyed-in-the-wool one thing or a dyed-in-the-wool other thing. And maybe that's just the way all of us in the media are reporting it. But I, I feel like there's some reality behind it, probably a little bit social media driven. But react to that idea. Yeah. So, look, all of our media is like that. All of our political parties are like that. All of the people who are most politically informed, most care about politics, tend 
to be like that. But ordinary Americans actually are not like that. Um, and so you're right that it can feel as though there is just, um, you know, ideologues in, in the literal sense of a term, not just as a pejorative, who say, hey, here's my ideology, and I'm going to fit how I perceive the world, what kind of policies I favor, how I respond to a piece of news through that prism. And it's nearly going to end up as a sort of hermetically sealed uh, system, right? So to give you a butt phrase, I'm on the left. I have always been on the left in, in, in my life. But I can see that in some places where the left is in charge, like San Francisco, the outcomes are pretty bad. Because it turns out that when you pursue well-intentioned policies in a way that's too ideological, that doesn't actually listen to some objections, that perhaps abstracts too much away from some of the realities of the world, you end up with bad outcomes even for the people who you most care about. And so I agree with you that one of the things that's really important is to preserve a political space where those buts have a place, where we can have our deep values that we're passionate about, but we're still going to be open to objections that somebody with whom we disagree might raise. We're still going to look at reality and see whether our ideology is actually playing out as we wish or whether it is ending up making the world a worse rather than a better play. And that too, that sensibility, again, centrist is not my favorite phrase, it's not how I'd usually describe myself, but in the broadest sense, there is a centrist sensibility which says, hey, there are all kinds of people who have wisdom in politics. Some of the people with whom I might disagree can actually bring something to the table. And rather than just, you know, shouting in favor of my team, I'm going to actually sit down at the table and hear them out and try to come up with solutions that actually are working in the complicated world such as it is. I mean, I'm wondering also if we could substitute for some of the language of centrism, heterodoxy versus orthodoxy, because I, I think it comes up there too. I'll give you a concrete example. So I, like you, I'm on the left. I increasingly think of myself as moving more towards the center, being more interested in accommodating multiple points of view. But for example, I've said a couple of times in the year that I, I recently, post-Dobbs, I've said, well, you know, I mean, I'm kind of from the Clinton administration, which I was not necessarily a huge fan of, but I, I thought they put it well, safe, legal, and rare, or safe, legal, but rare. <laughs> I'll do a but, you know, and, and there's some pushback that you get from that. You get it from uh, second wave feminists saying, what do you mean rare? Why does it have to be rare? What what are you saying about abortion? And and what I've sort of said back is, well, I just think, you know, it's it's kind of sad, usually. It means there was an unwanted pregnancy that's not as happy an occasion usually as a wanted pregnancy. I think if there's location X and they have 10 abortions this week and 100 abortions last week, then this week's a better week. They only had to do 10 abortions. But I can tell that I'm breaking the orthodoxy because the orthodoxy says, nope, you don't lay any kind of value set over abortion. It's just a right. Yeah, and this is one topic, and there's actually a good number of those, where, you know, the policy preferences of most Americans are just more moderate than the media would make it look, right? So when you look at CNN, or certainly when you look at, at MSNBC or Fox News, it seems as though there's sort of two tribes of Americans, right? And, and, and the first of them thinks that there's nothing at all morally concerning about abortions under any circumstances, and that anybody who has concerns about them just wants to control women's bodies. And then the other tribe supposedly thinks that 
you know, the life even of a two-week-old fetus is so important that, you know, if a mother ends up in serious health difficulties and, and might die because of pregnancy, that's just nature, nothing to be done about it. And that's just not how most Americans feel about it. Most Americans, interestingly, prefer, when you look at the detailed polls, a policy regime that's very similar to what we have in nearly all European countries, in France, in Germany, in Sweden, in Italy, and many other European countries. And what they say is, during the first trimester of pregnancy, you actually have far-reaching access to abortion, and you have no limits on what abortions are legal. But after the first trimester, these countries have very strict restriction kicking in, of course, with exceptions for extreme cases like the mother's life being threatened. But by and large, you cannot choose five months into a pregnancy to walk into a doctor's office and say, I've changed my mind. I, I now want to have an abortion. That actually is the majority opinion in the United States. And it is not the institutionalized opinion either of the Republican Party or of the Democratic Party. So that, I think, is an example in which with other kind of sense of centrism, um, most Americans are just pretty moderate and I think pretty thoughtful in their policy preferences. Right. So there's a price to pay, too. And I think you and I have both perceived the changing structure of that price. For example, as a kind of left-leaning centrist, or however we might describe you or me, you typically get most of your pushback. For most of your life, you get most of your pushback from the right. My column runs in some Hearst newspapers. Every Sunday, I just get, you know, really horrible, horrible emails from conservative people, arch-conservative people. But increasingly, if you take anything that looks like a centrist or kind of nuanced or heterodox position, you really can get whacked pretty hard by what you used to think of as your own side. This happened to you when you were one of the co-signatories uh, of the Harper's letter, which was uh, a plea for uh, accommodating a wider range of opinions, for permitting more and, once again, more heterodox speech on campuses and other forums. There are a lot of people on the left who just really went after you on social media. I don't know. How did you process that? Yeah, so I think there's two things here, right? The first is that criticism from the out group is always easy to take, right? <laughs> if you are a Dyden rule progressives and, you know, people on the right are telling you, you know, are shouting on social media about how evil you are, you don't care. In fact, you might wear it as a feather in your cap, say, look, these people who we hate think that I'm terrible. That means I'm great, right? Uh, and so, you know, criticism from within what you think of as broadly speaking your own tribe or from people you thought of as in certain ways your political allies or just people who you think have some of the same values as you, that's always going to hit a lot harder than criticism from, from the other side. And so what we have on both sides of the political spectrum is these incentives to always stick with your tribe, right? Like if you're on the right, if all of your friends are conservative, if you are, you know, let's say a fellow at a very conservative think tank, it doesn't matter if people on the left are denouncing you on, on Twitter all day long, it doesn't really affect your life. But if you criticize Donald Trump in some kind of way, then you might lose your job, then you might be in trouble, right? And the same for somebody like me, who has historically been on the left, is, is also the case. You know, I get some really nasty emails from the right and the far right. But, you know, it's not very pleasant, but I sort of just shrug it away. It doesn't actually affect me. But when people who I went to grad school with, when people who are, you know, colleagues at my own institution, when people who I've had lunch with, you know, in a friendly way in the past, suddenly take uh, to Twitter and say, you know, Yasha Monk signed the Harper's letter. He must be an evil person. But it hits you in a different kind of way. And of course, there's one more thing, which is that 
you know, mainstream institutions in the United States do tend to be left-leaning. So I think sort of the fear you have when you're being criticized from the left of, oh, suddenly those institutions might close their doors to you is, is more visceral. And I think that shows a problem that we have with how polarized the country has become and how few institutions we now have left that actually are capable of uh, speaking to all Americans and being open to all Americans. And that's something that in those situations I become very conscious of because I do start to think, well, I like being a member of these institutions. Is that suddenly going to cease being possible? When I think of centrism, like who was or could be an apostle of centrism in this country, oddly enough, I think it was a guy who was pretty recently president of the United States. Let's hear President Obama in 2019. But I do get a sense sometimes now among certain young people, and this is accelerated by social media, there is this sense sometimes of the way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people. And that's enough. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the word wrong verb or then... I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because, man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. <laughs> Let me get on TV. Watch my show. Watch Grownish. Um, you know, that's not, that's not activism. That, that's not bringing about change. You know, if, 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 if all you're doing is casting stones, uh, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get that far. That's easy to do. So, you know, Yasha, Obama comes in uh, after the 2008 election. He's been sort of campaigning on the idea of purple, not red and blue. He's going to get a lot of people to the table. And the reality is he doesn't ever really get the Republicans. Uh, McConnell, you know, says it's his project to make sure that Obama doesn't get a second term. They won't. Uh, even hear Garland's name and nomination for the Supreme Court. He doesn't really get the kind of cooperation he thought he could get. But it's sort of interesting to me here post-presidency, he's still talking about that idea that sitting in our individual silos is not necessarily going to create some kind of constructive public dialogue. But I don't know. How do you process Obama at this point? Well, first of all, I, I got to say that I, I really love Barack Obama and um, if I'm allowed the shameless self-plug, I was really honored <laughs> that he included my my latest book on his on his recommended reading list when Woo-hoo! he publishes sometimes. So the great experiment. Go read it. Obama wants you to. Um, but but look, <laughs> here, here's the thing about Obama and and every politician, right? Obama is a partisan in the sense that um he was the leader of a Democratic Party. He was the presidential nominee of a Democratic Party. And he made no bones about that, right? Of course he was left off center. Of course he had you know, a set of liberal, progressive, left-leaning, whatever you want to call them, policy preferences, and he argued for those unabashedly. So in that second sense of centrism, he probably wasn't a centrist. He was a liberal. He was a progressive. But what he had was this ability, this understanding of centrism in the more important sense of saying, hey, we can disagree, and I can still recognize that you're a decent person, right? I'm going to be president, not just of the people who voted for me, but, but of everybody. And they might strongly dislike my policies, but hopefully they'll recognize that I'm a decent person and I'm trying to do my best for this country and I'm still going to like them. And as you're pointing out, that wasn't enough to transform the country overnight. It wasn't enough to get Mitch McConnell to actually come to the bargaining table in good faith. But you know what? 
it was enough to win the presidential elections twice. Mm -hmm. It was enough to pass some important policies like an expansion of healthcare. So I think it actually was tremendously successful and it did make the country so much more pleasant to live in. I mean, when you think back to what it was like to live in the United States, some things have improved since, but just in terms of the ambient mood music of what it felt like to encounter your neighbors in 2010, 2012, when Obama was president, it was just so much more pleasant than this mutual rancor and hatred and division that we're living in today. So I do think that that strain of Obama's, which is not put on for show, which, as you're pointing out, has continued in this post-presidency and I think goes to the heart of who he is, was noble. I think, by the way, it was also a very good way for him to advance his policy preferences, which is one of the things that politicians should try and do. Okay, last thing I want to ask you about. So I was listening to your excellent podcast, The Good Fight, and I think it's the most recent episode. Is this guy, a, a clinician or a researcher, talking about possibly a rising tide of adult children cutting off contact with their parents. And the more that I listened to the two of you talk, I was thinking, I wonder if we're living in kind of a more and more donut-shaped universe where that hole in the middle is getting worse and worse all over the place. Where we're, I mean, because there, there's a way in which the two of you are talking about how you pathologize the other side, whatever the other side is. And it could be people who aren't vegetarians, or it could be people who aren't atheists, or it could be, I mean, even our healthcare system, I think, is increasingly bad at treating anything in the center. Everything's either a 911 call or we'll see you in two months. You know, there isn't sort of <laughs> that kind of middle type of problem. And I'm wondering about that, too. And you look around the world, you see, you know, Lula running against Bolsonaro. It's not an American problem, and I don't know if it's necessarily a political problem. Maybe we've just become a species that's increasingly bad at seeing any kind of humanity or worth in the other side and not just politically. Yeah, there is an odd need to be affirmed in all of your views and all aspects of your identity and all of your needs. And if somebody fails to do that, they must be a terrible person. That, that seems to be at the heart, as Joshua Coleman was saying, of this increase in estrangements between children and parents. There's two sides of this. Actually, a lot of children and parents are more close than they used to be. But, but there's now this idea that there has to be this symbiotic relationship between parents and children, where we really need to be able to, to get along wonderfully and that my parents need to see me and approve of me in every aspect of my being. And if they don't, then they're toxic and dangerous and I have to cut them out. And that is that kind of black and white thinking that you're referencing, right? I do think we have an analogous problem in, in our politics, where we've ceased to be able to say, your values are different from mine. Your assessment of what's going to make life better for people in this country is different from mine. But we do also share some commitments. We both love this country. We're both decent people. And, you know, I can argue with you till I'm blue in the face when we're having a political debate, when we're campaigning for some different sets of candidates that we're each passionate about, you know, we can shout and chant and so on. But at the end of the day, I see you as a decent human being. And I recognize that our political differences or our differences of other kinds of preferences don't define us all the way down. And I think um, you know, social media wants us to feed into our divisions. So much of our political discourse wants us to forget this fact about our common humanity. But ultimately, nearly every moral tradition emphasizes that similarity. I, as a philosophical liberal, think that human beings are equal. That's the 
fundamental creed of the founding fathers. Catholics talk about the human soul and the fact that that's the most fundamental thing about human beings. Different religious traditions express that in similar ways. And, and I think that that humanism, that importance of being human together and the way that that does connect us is something we would do well to remember. We've been talking to Yasha Munk, a professor at Johns Hopkins University, the author of The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Yasha, also the founder of the publication Persuasion. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Why don't you just meet me in the middle? I'm losing my mind just a little. So why don't you just meet me? So a few thank yous before we do our third and final segment here. Kat Pastor is, as usual, our technical producer today. And this episode was produced by the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, Lily Tyson. We're going to go from sort of theory to reality, and we're going to talk very specifically to someone, a name you know quite well, someone who is involved in creating a kind of centrist movement independent of either major political party. That would be Christine Todd Whitman, co-chair of the new Forward Party and the president of the Whitman Strategy Group. She is the former governor of the state of New Jersey, and she served in the cabinet of President George W. Bush as administrator of the EPA. First of all, welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Governor, this is explicitly a centrist movement, right? I mean, I'm, I read the statement that you and Andrew Yang and David Jolly put out in the Washington Post as an opinion piece, and you talk about the fact that the two parties have, I think you said, hollowed out the sensible center of our political system. A new party must stake out the space in between. So can you say a little bit more about that? What does that in-between space look like to you? Well, actually, what we're doing is something very different. Uh, you haven't had this happen before in the political realm, in that we don't feel that as a party we have to have candidates competing for every office. We will support Republicans, Democrats, Independents, as long as they agree with our basic tenets, which are thriving communities, people able to, everyone able to have opportunity to earn an income, security at home and abroad, and be willing to shake up the way we elect officials changing the system by ranked choice voting in open primaries. And if the candidates will agree to that, then we'll support them. We don't feel we have to have a forward party candidate in every election, but there are 500,000 elected offices across the country. And in 2020, 70% of those had no competition. It was one single person on the ballot. And that's wrong. And that's where we really intend to focus our attention, certainly as we're working through it now. So you have a long reputation as a Republican and a Republican who leans towards the center as opposed to out toward an extreme. Why discontinue working to kind of bulk that position up within the Republican Party? In other words, why start the forward party? Why not still be one of those voices for moderation among the Republicans? I tried that for a long time. <laughs> and I will say, honestly, I don't think there is a Republican Party. There's a cult of Trump because they didn't, the Republican Party in their convention in 2020 didn't even adopt a platform. And when you don't have a platform, that means you're not telling people this is what we stand for. There are no central core principles around which you can unite and then have differences opinion uh, within those. But so it's only what Donald Trump says you believe, whatever he says, whenever he says it. And that's not my definition of a viable political party. 
So centrism, I think, under more normal circumstances, kind of is, a, I think, associated fairly or otherwise with the maintenance of the status quo. You're not looking for the kind of change that a Bernie Sanders or an AOC is looking for. You're not looking to burn it all down the way Steve Bannon is. Centrism lives amid or around the status quo, except that I sense even listening to what you're saying today, you don't think that's really the case anymore. The status quo and the center are not on speaking terms, uh, that this is very much a dialogue between two extremes. Is that kind of how it feels? Well, that's what we see happening. And that's why for the first time, really in the country's history, you have some 50% of registered voters who are registered independent and more than 60% of Americans who say they'd welcome a third party, Republicans and Democrats. So the world is changing around us. The people are saying, I, we pox on both your houses. And I would argue that centrism doesn't mean the status quo. And we don't really think of ourselves in the terms of centrist, we, terms of being different. Because that's where you get things done is when people can come together and talk to one another and work out their problems. I mean, you look back over our history and we certainly had huge debates on the, in the well of the Senate and the floor of the House but then those two sides would go out and have a drink together and say, okay, we've got a problem. How do we solve this? And they'd figure out how to solve it. Now we're in a position where, oh, no, you can't do that because if the other side disagrees with you, they're your enemy. They no longer just have a difference of opinion. They're your enemy. Right. So, you know, I keep coming back to Yates and the, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passion and intensity. So it seems as though that passion and intensity on both sides has kind of ruled the day. Some people, though, people maybe who exist out on those extremes, would look at this movement and look at a center movement, a center third party, and say, well, some of these problems are so urgent, there's no center. There isn't a centrist way to fight a forest fire, and there isn't maybe a centrist way, as far as some people are concerned, to address something like climate change. Now, this is something that's right in your wheelhouse, uh, very dear to your heart. So what, what would a forward party desirable environmental climate policy look like? I can't speak to that because we, we are not going to dictate that. What we're going to say when a candidate runs with a for, under the forward banner and they're asked a question about that, they need to answer the way they believe it should be handled and the way their constituents believe it should be handled, that particular issue. Not what a party somewhere in the ethos is telling them they have to believe or where they have to be on a particular issue. That's part of what's pr the problem we have today is the parties dictate and all they care about is winning and staying in power, not about solving the problems. We're going to be a party based on a set of principles without dictating down to the lowest level policy positions. But there are principles then, and they yes. they create some kind of shaded in area sure. in the graph in terms of sure. what you're looking for. In other words, if somebody's climate change policy is climate change denial, you're not going to endorse them. And I'm guessing if somebody's okay. climate change policy is a radical and an abrupt restructuring uh, of our energy system, you're probably going to look upon that with some skepticism too, right? There is. Well, that's going to be the that's going to be up to the states. We're building this party with people. At the state level, we're having a series that we were in Houston a couple of weeks ago, listening to people saying, what do you think the major problems are facing your community and how do you want to solve them? Not what we tell you you have to do and you have to take up as your major issue because the major issues in Newark are going to be very different from those in Tucson. And that's we have to start giving this back to the people, which is another reason why one of the few, a couple of the few actual policy things that we are saying are we feel are absolutes is 
ranked choice voting and open primaries in order to give everybody, no matter what district you live in, a voice that candidates have to talk to everybody and that you have a chance to be heard, even though you may feel you're the minority. Right. Well, there's even kind of a theory that ranked choice voting is more likely to produce a centrist candidate, right? There's a way in which the kind of the math of that favors uh, a little bit more than the current system does anyway, some kind of consensus candidate. Well, a consensus candidate, sure. The person who wins under ranked choice voting, let's say, obviously represents more of the public than someone who wins with a, in a 23% voter turnout of a particular party. I mean, overall, we have we have minority candidates all over the place. And until recently, turnout in primaries has been 10%. So you have a very small part of the electorate making the choices for the future and for the November elections. And then people are saying, I don't like either of these choices. They're not what I believe, and, and they're not voting. And, in, and when uh, Congress is the top of the ticket, the turnouts have been, in the, on average, 34%. And we think we've done a bang-up job on presidential when we get a little bit over 50. And that's just not, not right. So I guess last question, Governor Whitman, yeah. which is, and it's we're sort of circling back to the beginning. It's something that I think is very much there in what you've said so far and what has been the kind of rhetoric of the forward party, which is that there's a disconnect already between the political establishment and what seems to be the will of the of the people, at least expressed through polling, right? Most of the polling on reproductive choice indicates some kind of center position that lies between the elimination of reproductive choice entirely and sort of the Wild West. And the same with guns, literally between, mm-hmm. I think, the Wild West and the elimination of the Second Amendment. So talk a little bit about that. It almost feels as though we've been living for a long time in a political system that doesn't listen well. Well, that's what our founding fathers worried about. They warned us about parties and said, be careful because parties will become about themselves and not about the issues. And that's what we've seen, which is why it becomes so important to remind people of the role they have in our democracy and the role that they can play and giving them the tools to enable them to do it and to have them feel that the people they are electing are going to be responsive to them. All right. Christine Todd Whitman, it's been a pleasure and an honor to speak to you. Co-chair of the New Forward Party, the president of the Whitman Strategy Group, former governor of the state of New Jersey and former administrator of the EPA. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. And to the rest of you, thanks for listening. I know centrism doesn't sound like the most sexy topic in the world, but I think it's an important topic anyway.